0: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.
1: It is Tuesday, February 15th, and you are listening to the 24 7 Sports. Football Recruiting Podcast. My name is Blair Angulo. Thank you so much for tuning in. We will continue our preview and our look at the 2023 class as we put the 2022 class fully in the rearview mirror. And we are going to get back to a a series that we did last year, which is looking at storylines across the Power 5 conferences, recruiting storylines heading into the spring. And let's kick it off with the ACC. And to do so, we've got national recruiting analyst Brian Dome. On the line, he is fully thought out, Brian. We haven't talked to you in a while. You are our soccer correspondent here on this podcast. And before we get to some of these five storylines across the ACC, I did want to ask you, what was your thought about the US men's national team, you know, playing some frozen tundra games?
2: Well, two things. I'm not thought out yet because here in New Jersey on Monday, it is 21 degrees after we got about six inches of snow on Super Bowl Sunday. So let's start off with that. The other thing about it is when you look at what the U.S. team did, and I get, you know, for travel reasons that, you know, you were going to play your middle game in, in Hamilton, you know, up in Canada, that you wanted to remain relatively close. And then you had the advantage against El Salvador and Honduras because of the weather. Listen, man, if you need the weather to beat honduras and el salvador then let's just close up shop now okay if you need the weather to beat them on your home turf let's just close up shop you know and i I think u.s it's a decent spot for qualifying i expect them to qualify the the game against panama in march will be huge for that but I, i i remain steadfast in the belief that even if this team does qualify it will do so not because of the manager but in spite of the manager
1: that's a good way to put it. I've always been in the boat of why are they playing these games? And no knock on cities like Columbus, right? Or Minneapolis.
2: No, or, I mean, Or Nashville, right?
1: They play in some of these cities where you're just like, okay, why aren't they going to Los Angeles or Dallas? Or why aren't they playing in front of 70,000 instead of growing the sport and minimizing it into these smaller MLS venues where it's 15 000 to 17,000 capacity? And you're just like, okay, wh- what are we doing? Doing here but that's that's neither here nor there i did want to get your thoughts because we hadn't talked about it for such a long time yeah. obviously the qualifiers I mean, we, are continuing and, it, and and i know our listeners like to hear your thoughts on on, on
2: well i'll just say this in closing about it, I'll say this. Listen, playing Mexico and Columbus is great, right? And I understand why they may not want to play it in Dallas or in LA or Miami because there's a sense that maybe, you know, I went to a game in New Jersey, a qualifier in the last cycle against Costa Rica. It was 50-50 in that thing. So I understand wanting the home field advantage. But at the end of the day, I mean, again, they weren't playing Mexico, you know, up in Minnesota. They're playing, you know, Honduras and El Salvador were were the two games that were home. I mean, what are we doing?
1: No, I agree with you. I agree with you. You know, and I think I like to tie in our conversation with soccer because of the pageantry, because there is, there's so much passion. And I think from a correlation standpoint, there's a lot there to draw from in terms of what we see at college football fan bases, right? Like No doubt. hundred percent. Like, there's a lot of connection there that you don't really see across other professional sports or international tournaments or whatever it may be. So there is, a, I think, a really strong correlation there between what we see at a college fan bases and our own national team, you know, I think fandom or the way we follow things. But let's get back into college football recruiting, the ACC team storylines, five of them heading into the spring evaluation period. And let's kick it off with North Carolina, which is coming off a number two class in the ACC in the 2022 rankings, 17 commitments in that class uh, across the high school landscape with two five stars. And we are entering year four of Mac Brown, in Chapel Hill. What do you expect and what are you going to be looking for out of the Tar Heels as we approach the spring?
2: You know, this is a conversation I've had with a lot of people in the last month or so, just in what the expectation level should be with North Carolina recruiting. Because, like you said, this is year four for Mac Brown, right? And now, I don't look at the first recruiting class because you come in late and it's really hard to throw things together when you have a December signing period now. But when you look at 2020, they were 14th in a country, second in the ACC, in 21, 14th and third, in 22, like I said, 11th and second, right? And the results on the field haven't matched that so far. And that's okay until now. Now you have a lot of your guys in the program. You know, you, you just made a change at defensive coordinator. So I personally, I'm not a big believer in on-field results, helping recruiting early in a coach's tenure. But in year four, I'll be curious to see, you know, whether they land some kids like Noah Rogers, top player in North Carolina, receiver from Rollsville. Right now, if he's decided, you know, NC State is the school to watch right now with him, even though Carolina is still there. Keith Sampson, the number two player, didn't have him in the top five, and but he's supposed to visit campus in a few weeks. They have a commitment from Tad Hudson, a four star quarterback, instead. He's he's their lone commitment right now in the class. And so it's not a really top heavy class like maybe some of the others have been. In the last class, they absolutely slated in Virginia. I mean, they got whether it was Andre Green, George Petaway, Zach Rice. I mean, they were absolutely fantastic in recruiting Virginia. You know, they got, they got three of the top players out of Virginia Beach, you know, when you go back and and look at it, Tyshawn Chapman and Tavon Holloway as well. But I don't feel like right now there's as much high-end depth in Virginia also. So I'm curious to see, A, where Carolina pushes for some other guys. You know, can they get some, some high-level players maybe from another state? You know, you look at the offensive line with Sam Pendleton from North Carolina. He also, as it stands right now, North Carolina has some work to do. And so... If you have, if you're going into the season and there's maybe some questions, if you're a recruit, well, then the fall will answer those questions. And if they answer it in a good way, you can see maybe Carolina flips some kids and makes a strong finish with the class. So I I think this is a really interesting situation at Carolina, kind of where, you know, the recruiting and the expectations that come with how well they've recruited the first few years under Mac Brown, you now want to start seeing some of that development on the field and maybe some of those results on the field, because for the most part, they've been a 500 team.
1: Yeah. And I think that's an interesting point because the sample size now has been bigger, right? Like you, we are able now to see what Mac Brown is doing with the Tar Heels on the field when he gets there at first, I'm sure it's a lot of selling and it's a lot of, uh, you know, kind of projection and, and Hey, this is how we're going to use you. And this is what we're going to do offensively and defensively. And this is what we're going to look like. Now everyone knows what they look like. Now everyone knows, Hey, these are his own players. Now let's see what he's able to do. Uh, so it's going to be interesting to see whether that recruiting pitch changes a bit. It and how that's taken from some of these recruits. So, a very good point there. Let's move on to the second storyline that we're going to tackle here in the ACC heading into the spring. And that would be Mario Cristobal arriving at his alma mater, the Miami Hurricanes. He did close pretty impressively during the early signing period and then heading into that first Wednesday of February for the traditional signing day. And now he gets a clean slate. Now he gets to start over, start fresh with the 2023 class, start those relationships in 2024 and 2025. But before we get down the road with that, there is going to be, I think, a, a very, I want to say a magnifying glass, right? Like a, on what Mario Cristobal is able to do this spring, whether he's able to attract some big names nationally, we know he's going to attack South beach and he's going to attack his own state. And, and that's going to be something that's going to be very pivotal for Miami to recruit against the likes of Florida and Florida state. But I'm going to be interested to see if he's able to carry over some of the, some of the tactics and, and, and I think maybe. Maybe the approach that he had at Oregon, where he's bringing in some top talent from across the country.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I guess to start off for me, when you're looking at Mario Cristobal is it goes back a ways to where Miami had real legit buzz on the recruiting trail, right? I mean, I, I know Mark Rick was an was a interesting hire with what he had did at, you know, done at Georgia and all that stuff, but I, I never felt like there was that big carryover in recruiting. I never felt that it was that way with Manny Diaz, who... You know, all, I felt like with Manny Diaz from the get-go, it was almost like, can this guy get it done? Not if yeah, he would I felt or like both would of those, not. Yeah, right.
1: Th- those were both like X's and O's hires, right? Like yeah. they, I, I think they assumed that recruiting would take care of itself, and that Mark Richt and Manny Diaz and both of those guys being you know, I guess, brilliant defensive minds at the time of the hire, they would sort things out and the, the talent would take care of itself.
2: Yeah. And, and one thing I've learned, and I learned it a long, long time ago, there's no substitute for talent. I don't care how good you are at X's and O's. If you have good talent, you know, <laughs> you need that. And so I think with with what Cristobal has done, and you mentioned, you know, got some buzz going late in the cycle after he got the job through January, they, they had success in the transfer portal. Then you bring in Josh Gaddis, from Michigan and he's going to run your offense. And, you know, you go back to the Penn State days when Gaddis was an assistant there and before he went to Bama, he was considered a really good recruiter. Then you saw, you know, he's coming out of helping Michigan get to the playoff for the first time. And he's well thought of, he's got connections all over the place. And, and so it's interesting from that standpoint, they already have a, a pair of receivers committed you know Andy Jean, who you know just jumped on board recently, and you know they have another kid, Lamar Seymour, who's been in the mix for a long, long time, almost two years now. But you look at that, but then you turn around and you look at the state of Florida. There are some big time receivers in the state, whether it's Cardinal Tate or Brandon Ennis or Jalen Brown. I mean, those are some just. Big time receivers that you know you'd really like to get in the mix. If you're Miami, I, I don't. You know, I was talking to Andrew Ivans, our guy down there uh, earlier, and we we're you know we were talking about just recruiting, and, and he was talking about how there's not a ton of D in Florida in this cycle. And I, I really think, listen, everybody always talks about Mario Cristobal, Miami needing to recruit South Florida and have success down there, and it makes sense, right? Because there's so much talent. There's a reason why everybody recruits Florida, but you also, if you're Miami and you're trying to be that high end program, you also have to be able to find some find some talent from outside of, you know, your home base. And I think that's what's really interesting with Mario Cristobal and you know, that stint that he had at Oregon, where, and Blair, you know it much better than I do just from being out on the West Coast. You know, when you recruit at Oregon, you better recruit nationally because there's not enough talent in Oregon to sustain a program. And so he built a lot of relationships through that that you're, I really want to see how that manifests itself now being At Miami, where Oregon, and you know this—I mean, kids don't go there for the uniform, but it's what draws a kid is oh, Oregon, the uniform. And to be honest, these kids—the last time Miami was good, it's when their parents probably were were kids. And so you know, the U and the thirty for thirty, all that stuff. And so I'm curious to see how that works as well. And and there's high expectations on Mario Cristobal at Miami for what he. He should be able to do in recruiting, and he's always been a really good recruiter. I mean, you go back to his days when he was at Rutgers, you know, early on with Greg Schiano the first time around, and he was considered a really good recruiter then. And, and in talking to some people down in Florida, one of the things that really plagued the last few coaches were they weren't going to get involved heavily in recruiting and kind of, I don't want to say a grassroots level, but really be active. And Mario Cristobal is really active in recruiting. I'm not going to sit there and say any coach loves recruiting, because if your choice is not recruit or recruit, I mean, you know, I, I get that, but, but he's a guy who's good at it, who works really hard at it, and is not afraid to roll up his sleeves and recruit Every day.
1: Yep. Big storyline in the ACC heading into the spring. Mario Cristobal at Miami. We're going to take a look at some more storylines after the break. You're listening to the 24 7 Sports Football Recruiting Podcast. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential?
0: And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road.
1: We are back on the twenty four seven sports football recruiting podcast, Blair and with Brian Doan, national recruiting analyst for twenty four seven sports. You can follow him on Twitter at Brian two four seven. He will be live tweeting all these upcoming U.S. soccer matches, which you can watch on Paramount Plus, our parent company. And and Brian, it is a lot of fun, and and I always can can tell how nervous you are by how how frequent you're tweeting during some of these games.
2: Well, I, I'm not going to say that I'm nervous because at the end of the day, I you know I, I still got to go do my job and enjoy my family and everything. So I, I don't get all caught. You know, once the game's over, it's over for me. But I cannot stand when people think they're smarter than they are. And that's what really frustrates me when, you know, you're always trying to uh, reinvent the wheel.
1: That's uh, yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> you're, taking, you're, you're taking shots now. I, I you know, I, I hear you. I hear you. Uh, let, let's move on to the next storyline and the ACC. That would be Clemson with some new coordinators. They lost both of them to uh, to head coaching positions, and Dabo Sweeney didn't have the the best year. Not only recruiting, but also on the field. It, it you know, obviously it seemed like Clemson took a step back. Uh, the the DJ Iwianga Lele project that you know. I think everyone assumed would be, uh, you know, I, I think we wouldn't we wouldn't see much of a, of a lapse or or missing a step after Trevor Lawrence. But, you know, we uh, we did see that 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 struggle kind of manifest itself and, and it showed on the field. Now, from a recruiting standpoint, I think Dabo needs to,
2: to rebound. Two things on that, and and I agree with DJ. With everybody thought he was going to be better. You had that small sample size from the year before, so there was reason for optimism. It, it didn't really work, but there's also a reason they went out and got a you know Hunter Johnson, the quarterback from Northwestern, who, who's going to be back at Clemson. I I think that was important, you know, it, you know, and, and you get him, you have Cade Clubnik, so there should be some competition. At the quarterback spot or more, I don't think it was there last year. And before we sound the alarms at just how bad Clemson was in recruiting last year and just how awful and how they need to change everything around, we should probably point out that they finished top in the ACC and number ten overall. So it's not like all of a sudden Clemson brought in, you know, hey, we're just going to rely on walk-ons. I mean, they still had an unbelievable class. But the flip side, and and, and one of the big reasons is there was some really big-time talent in South Carolina, and they, they landed, you know, a handful of those kids. But you know, I, I think it's really interesting. You bring up the coordinators, and for me, being in this part of the country, you get to see Clemson recruit a lot, and Tony Elliott, good coordinator, good offensive coordinator. Now the now the head coach at UVA. You didn't hear his name come up in recruiting a lot. And so Brandon Streeter, who's been around the program for a while, I know people look at and say he doesn't have the experience at Clemson and and all that stuff. But he, you know, he learned under Tony Elliott, so, so I get it. And, and I never viewed Tony Elliott as this dynamic recruiter as a coordinator. Now the flip side is Brent Venables, the D coordinator, who's now at Oklahoma. Man, if I could stretch the Eastern Seaboard, and anytime I would speak to a coach or a kid, they would talk about Brent Venables and how much they enjoyed speaking with him, how much they enjoyed being recruited by him. Even if the kids didn't go there, the coaches loved them. And I'm talking about, you know, from Florida up through New England along the Eastern Seaboard. He was there for a long time. He was synonymous with Clemson. And to be honest, I when I was dealing with Clemson and kids being recruited by Clemson, the name I would hear the most was Venables. So from that standpoint, you know, Wes Goodwin has to show that, hey, he can recruit. He's also got to be able to coordinate a defense, all that stuff, which I'm sure he'll be fine with. But I, I think to me, the big loss is, you know, Venables was so active in recruiting and, and really well liked. And then can they continue to go out and what are they going to do with the quarterback position? You know, Blair, there's a quarterback in the 23 class. You may have heard of him. I'm, I'm not sure. His name is Arch Manning, right? And so Clemson uh, was... That? Yes, yes. Uh, we've written a story or two on him. But Clemson was involved with him for a while. And, you know, maybe a few years ago, you would think, okay, they, they may be the aunt favorite just, just based on some things. But he's not really looking at Clemson anymore. They're now onto a kid from Alabama, Christopher Vizina. So we'll see if they can land him, and and there's a battle for him. It's not like he's some slouch. I mean, you know, he's number eight at his position in a top 100 kid. But I think, you know, looking to make that quarterback room healthy again is big as they move forward, And, and just making sure they continue to recruit the way Clemson had. And one of the things that always struck me with Clemson is, as much as we talked about the coaches and I just went on and on about Brent Venables and and his ability, the other thing I always heard with Clemson was just how well the players inside the program Recruited kids when they came to campus, and how those, you know, they would stay in touch, and that was always a big influence. And whenever kids got to visit Clemson, they got along so well with the players in the program. And I think that has to continue as well. And if that continues, Clemson will be fine.
1: Yeah, I'm sure there's fans from across the country that are listening to this, and and they hear us maybe throw some shots at Clemson for finishing top ten, and like you said, number one in the ACC. But I think the standard had been set so high. That you expect them to be competing for top five classes nationally, and and, and to you know maybe kind of uh, be an attractive place in the transfer portal as well. I know Dabo is not really using it as much as he, as maybe some of his, his other peers are, are using it. But you know, I think if you're a Clemson fan, you hope that the 2022 cycle is more of a of a one off and not uh, kind of a, an indication or signal of what's to come in, in in future classes. Because you know the there was there was a time there where Clemson was was striking while the iron. Was hot, and you hope that you know that wasn't just a phase, right? That they are back to being a national prominent program and and winning some of these recruiting battles. Let's move on to the next storyline in the ACC for the 2023 class this upcoming spring, and that would be Florida State, which has to rebound after losing a player like Travis Hunter, the number one prospect in the 2022 class, in the fashion in which they lost Travis Hunter to Jackson State, Uh and you you wonder. You know, whether or not Florida State's going to be able to maintain some of the momentum that they had built last offseason. Obviously, things didn't go that well on, on the field. And I think that really slowed the momentum that they had started to accrue uh, from a recruiting standpoint. But remember, the, the Seminoles were leading the charge in a lot of the stuff that we now talk about and and some of the stuff that's so prevalent in recruiting with the offseason you know, recruiting visits, the midnight madness that they had where they were welcoming recruits in at the stroke of midnight, uh, the name, image, and likeness, and the way they're uh, using all that sort of stuff. So I'm really interested to see what florida state looks like this spring
2: now you bring up some great points there and it's like you know we spoke about mac brown before in year four and you want to see some stuff well it's still early for mike norvell right and so you're still on that build and and i remember talking to people last fall about it you know maybe florida state wasn't playing what people you know to the capability of what people thought they should play and i get it with with some of the results but it's still or it was still early on in the process and i think this is coming up is that year where you're you're looking to see some progress on the field to where you could see some of the guys they recruited. Now you, you you brought up the the other big one, you know, with Travis Hunter, where he winds up signing with Jackson State, and you understand, you know, he goes Jack State is going to go play for for Deion Sanders. You understand what Deion can do for you as a DB and training and all that stuff, and that you lost him to Jackson State. Those things happen, right? Whether you want to acknowledge it or admit it or whatever, those things happen. The bigger issue was. What does Florida State learn from it? And from that standpoint, I mean this. He had visited Jackson State for a game. Everybody knew he was there, right? I think he took some pictures while he was there. And there was the feeling at Florida State of, well, if we're losing them, it's to Georgia. We're not losing them to Jackson State. And so now, what do they do to change their recruiting philosophy? And I don't mean all of a sudden turn everything over and be like, oh, we have to do everything differently. What I mean by that is you got to pay attention to things that you might not even think matter, because at the end of the day, they may turn out to be big things. And so, the test case for this one is their quarterback commit, Chris Parson, a kid out of Tennessee. He committed there in July. They had, you know, some changes in staff, including with the offensive coordinator. He's still all good. He was on campus in January. He's a kid. You know, when it came down to making a decision, he had his top eight: was Miami, Kentucky, Louisville, Virginia Tech, uh, Tennessee, TCU, and I think Alcorn State was in there too. And so he is not a kid in their backyard. Travis Hunter was much closer. You know, you would think that Chris Parson is going to visit campus in the spring. I'm sure he'll get there for the spring game or a spring practice. I am sure he'll get there in June or July or both for some kind of event. And then he'll, you know, whatever happens with official during the season. And you just, he's the guy that, Florida State is relying heavily on in this class for recruiting. He's the guy that is reaching out to the other recruits, the other commits. Now, keep in mind, they, they have three other commits in the class, including two on the offensive side. So he needs to stay in contact with them and also bring guys into the fold. And so Florida State has to have its antennas up and make sure everything remains good with Parson. And again, I'm not saying anything's bad or anything. Everything's fine. But as we move forward, you know, you're still... 10 months out from him being able to sign. And so Florida State just needs to learn from the Travis Hunter thing and just kind of move forward and just really make sure they're paying attention to some things that in the past maybe they said, ah, no big deal.
1: Yeah, I, I think now it's put everyone on alert and not just Florida State, but but a lot of the other schools that maybe have these prominent prospects that the HBCUs will will go after, right? The Deion Sanders is now calling his shot and say, hey, everyone's fair game. I'm going to go after some of these players. Uh, it just so happened that Florida State was kind of the guinea pig there. So it's be interesting to see how how the Seminoles respond and how they bounce back and 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 whether they're they're able to you know really continue to to lock things in. Um, obviously, I think on field results and the trajectory of that program on the field will will certainly help with that as well. Moving on to the fifth and final storyline in the ACC for the 2023 class would be the arrival of, of some new coaches. You touched on Tony Elliott earlier at Virginia, but also Brent Pry at Virginia Tech. Those two will have uh, you know kind of the spotlight this spring as well.
2: Well, I think, first of all, when you look at it, both of them will bring a different philosophy as a head coach to each of the organizations, whether it's Pry, who's a former Penn State assistant, who's now running Virginia Tech, or whether it's Elliott at Virginia. And here's the thing. Virginia has been recruited very heavily by schools not from Virginia. Whether it was North Carolina last year, who just absolutely killed it in the class in Virginia. And then you look at this year, and right now the top out of the top five prospects, three of them are committed to Penn State. And I mean, it's tough, right? That it's it's close enough for Penn State where they're re, you know, regionally they'll be able to draw in players like that. You know, Cam Seldon and Joel Starlings, two other really good players in the state in the class, it's gonna be tough for Virginia or Virginia Tech to land either one of them. So why is this significant? Well, because for the first time in a while, both schools, and I'm sure the folks at Virginia and Virginia Tech hate being lumped together. And so I apologize for that, but it does make sense in this mm-hmm. vein. Both schools now have a head coach who is not afraid to roll up his sleeves, recruit hard, ask his staff to recruit hard, connect with players and coaches within the state and, you know, I had numerous prospects in the last few cycles tell me that at UVA, really the only time they would talk to Bronco Mendenhall was if they were on campus or late in the recruitment, there'd be a phone call, maybe early in recruitment to be a quick call, but that was it. And in this day and age players, you well know that cannot happen. You have to be able, as a head coach, you have to have a relationship with the Prospect that you're trying to recruit, especially if you're not a top five program that kind of just sells itself. And so, you know, for Virginia, that has changed with Tony Elliott, who's been active. And then at Virginia Tech, the one thing I like with Brent Prye, I mean, there's a lot I like, but one thing that I'll point out is that, you know, when Fuentes was there, it was more about, well, we can get this kid. So let's go really hard after this kid we could get. And I didn't feel like Virginia Tech would always compete at the level it needed to compete in recruiting because they weren't willing to keep losing prospects they, they didn't want to put the effort in if they weren't going to get them. And I feel like with Pry, he's willing to go and, and it filters down to the staff. He is willing to recruit the top guys and go after the top guys and and understand that, well, I may not get Alex Birchmeyer who's committed to Penn State or, you know, Anthony Donko, who just committed to Penn State, he at least wants to open up that dialogue and see, hey, we need to do everything we can early on to get involved with these kids. And then if we don't get them at the end, fine, but we have to at least compete early on to try to get them.
1: Mr. Brian Doe, not only does he offer the hottest takes on U.S. soccer, but also clumping together Virginia and Virginia Tech fans. Oof. Oh yeah, <laughs> Brian. Thank you so much for joining us to break down these ACC recruiting storylines. I appreciate it, man. Thank you. All right, that is Brian Doan. You can follow him on Twitter at Brian two four seven. He's a national recruiting analyst for twenty four seven Sports. For Brian Doan, I am Blair Angulo, and our producer Lance Flynn. Thank you so much for tuning into this edition of the twenty four seven Sports Football Recruiting Podcast.